is in the New Testament, right after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts, and uh, we find ourselves in Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 6, and we hopefully will get, make it through the rest of the chapter. Well, as we've been studying in the book of Acts, if you wanted to summarize the message, what is Acts about? Well, it's about Christ's kingdom purposes. And what we've been seeing is that these kingdom purposes are unfolding before us. And they unfold primarily through the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the word, the preaching of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners. And as a result, we've really begun to see churches being established. Just as we sang and speak, oh Lord, that is just really riveting through all of the pages of the book of Acts. But maybe something that hasn't come up to your mind as we've been working our way through this wonderful narrative is what's lying in the background. Maybe you've picked up on it here and there, but really what's going on is we are seeing God's sovereign hand upon the pages of Scripture. Sometimes just there in the background and in the way things come about, but other times more explicit. When I speak of God's sovereignty, what do, what do we mean by that? What do we mean when we say that God is sovereign? When we speak of God's sovereignty, we're talking about God's all-encompassing rule and authority. His authority over the realms of creation through which Jesus brings about His kingdom purposes. So let me just unpack that just a little bit. We're talking about God's all-encompassing authority, meaning it is not limited in any way. There is nothing greater than Him. There's nothing that has authority over Him. And then God has authority over the realms of creation. And by that I mean not only the physical world, not only you and me, but also uh, over, over this planet, even the spiritual realm, the things that we cannot see. Now with the death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus Christ is exercising this rule in a particular way as he's bringing about his kingdom purposes that we see in Acts. And so the concept of God's sovereignty, it's found throughout the pages of Scripture. But for our purposes, I just want to show you where this has been poking its head throughout the pages in Acts. We, if you want, you can turn all the way to the very beginning in Acts chapter 1 where we read of the apostles, um, they're down to 11 because Judas has defected. He has turned and betrayed Christ. And you might say, well, that certainly wasn't on God's radar. Maybe that wasn't something that God would have planned. But in Acts chapter 1, verse 16, we read, Brothers, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. The scriptures foretold that this would happen. This was part of God's redemptive plan. And Peter is reminding the church that this has not caught God off guard. Moving forward in that narrative, still in chapter 1, they chose Matthias. And as they're seeking God's will and how to do that, see the strong sovereignty that is expressed as they prayed, verse 24. And they said, Lord, you know the hearts of all. 
show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. And then the scripture says they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. Casting lots was a way of expressing that their belief in the sovereignty of God. You look in the Psalms and the Proverbs, and they say, the lot lies in the lap of a man, but God determines the lot. And so they're praying, Lord, show us, and understanding something as minute as what we would consider dice. That whatever comes up, Lord, you determine that. This gets even more specific as we look at the crucifixion of Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching in verse 23. He says, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. and was killed by the hands of lawless men. Acts chapter 4. The church is praying in regards to persecution that is uh, breaking out against her and, uh, and identifying it with the persecution that Jesus experienced. And, and in Acts chapter 4, verse 27, listen to what the church prays. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So even the crucifixion, all the events, Judas included, all the Gentiles, Herod and Pontius Pilate, the people of Israel, these things happened according to God's sovereign hand. Acts chapter 9, you're thinking about the conversion of Paul. This time he saw Jesus appears to him on the road of Damascus. In Acts chapter 9, verse 5, Paul cries out to Jesus and he says, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. That's what he says. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. That's the words of a king. And then as Jesus prepares Ananias about Saul he says this but the Lord said to him verse 15 go for he speaking of Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel why did Paul meet Saul on the road to Damascus because he was his chosen instrument you've done what you need to do now I've got you right where I want you you're now going to be on my team Acts chapter 11, Peter's gone and preached the gospel to the household of Cornelius. At the end of Acts chapter 11, verse 18, look at what the Jews say when they hear the testimony of how they came to faith in Christ. Acts eleven eighteen. when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Who they recognize repentance comes from? Came from God. It's not to mention the times where Peter's been in prison and God has sovereignly acted to release him from prison. And over and over again, you'll see in the book of Acts, like in Acts chapter 12, verse 24, the word of God increased and multiplied. 
What does that mean? It means that people were preaching the gospel and people were being saved, but describes it in such a way that the word is acting. That God is acting as the word is being preached. And so just in the book of Acts alone, and if we were to go through and do a study throughout the whole Old Testament and, and the Gospels and then how the epistles speak of this, you cannot escape the fact that God is all-powerful and almighty and he does as he pleases. However, many Christians, and maybe you're one of them, struggle to accept what the Scripture teaches about this. You struggle because how could this be? And usually, there's two objections to God's sovereignty that often I hear. First of all, it is said that to believe in such strong determinism would make God out to be a monster. That He would then be the author of sin and He uses evil. Well, the problem with that is that this objection doesn't fit with Scripture either. Because not only does Scripture say that God is absolutely sovereign, but it also says that God is absolutely holy, righteous, and good. There is no darkness in Him. That He hates sin. And He has no part in wickedness. Now, I can't expound this one too much this morning, but I encourage you to go to my sermons in Acts chapter 9. Go online, oakparkbaptist.com, where I address the issue of God and suffering. How can God be a good and holy God and then allow suffering? There's two sermons on that, suffering in the love of God and suffering in the purposes of God. But the second objection that I often hear is a more practical one, less philosophical. And sometimes people say, all right, all right, if you say that, then why evangelize? Why pray? If God is just in control of everything, even the lot that is cast then really, we're just pawns in his hand. Why do we even try? Well, this morning, I want to address this second objection, not because this is my agenda, but I actually think this is what we learn in Acts chapter 16 this morning. That in fact, we're going to see that God is sovereign over all the events that are taking place, not only in Acts chapter 16, but really all that's going on. But what I want you to see is that God's sovereignty doesn't squelch evangelism, it actually fuels it. It doesn't squelch prayer, it actually gives us a reason to pray. And we're going to see that God is sovereign over all these things, and yet, Paul and Silas are going to be preaching and teaching and going to people, and guess what? They're going to be praying that God would do something. So let's look at our text this morning, and just starting in verse 6, Paul and Silas, they went about through the region of Phygeria and Galatia, but notice here, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and when they came up to Mycenae, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So starting off here, the Lord is giving us an idea of Paul's plans, Silas's plans. They were going to go up into Phygeria and Galatia, but some way they were not able to whether that was because of travel arrangements we do not know but he's emphasizing God's sovereignty here by saying they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit for some reason they weren't able to go where they thought they were wanting to go and it's not like they were wanting to do things that were not 
holy and righteous and good. They're trying to, they're missionaries. They're trying to take the gospel to new areas. They're trying to get to Asia. However, the same thing happened there. But this time he describes it as the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. This isn't a different spirit. This is still speaking of the Holy Spirit, but recognizing that Jesus is exercising his reign through the church by the Holy Spirit guiding his people. And so here you're seeing the sovereignty of God guiding Paul and Silas through just providence. They're trying to go one place, but they're forbidden. And it wasn't like they're on their way and the Holy Spirit appears in like some flame of fire and says, you're forbidden to go here. That's not what happened. Okay, well, we'll go on over to the next place. And then the Holy Spirit appears. Nope, you can't go here. It was just how life was working. Recognizing that God's working in the events of history. But something happens. Look in verse 8. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. Vision, maybe some of your translations have dream. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Visions are actually quite rare in Scripture, just so you know. This is uh, a The third vision, second story of visions in the book of Acts. Peter and Cornelius kind of count that as one. And now you have Paul here having a vision or a dream at night. And just let me make just one comment about that. Because sometimes people look at these things and they say, well, then we should be looking for visions and extra revelation for guidance where God is going to lead us. But here's what I want to encourage you. If you look in Scripture, even in the Old Testament... And seeing the visions that come, no one seeks them out. They happen to them. They're sleeping. They're, they're, they're sitting like Peter on, on a roof. He's hungry, and then all of a sudden, a trance comes upon him. No one's saying, all right, Lord, I'm seeking guidance, so give me a vision. When anybody's seeking guidance, they go to the word of the Lord. And so I want to encourage you, if you're tempted to look elsewhere, I know how that goes. You say, Lord, give me a sign. And you walk through the grocery and you see the People magazine and it says something. They did it. You should too. Oh, that's my vision. I must do it. Whatever it was. No, that's not what happened here. We want to stand upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ. But I want you to see also that there there seems to be a, a sense in which Paul collaborates with Luke and Silas here. Notice at the end, it says they concluded that God had called us to preach. That word there speaks of kind of gathering together and thinking through something. Paul shared the vision with them, and they wrestled through it. Which I would also encourage you, many times when we play the I got a vision or a word from the Lord cards, it's just you and yourself and I. Has nothing to do with you testing it to see if it lines with Scripture. Has nothing to do with what the godliest people in your life say. And you're just listening to things that don't make any sense. And you're going to say, oh, God called me to this. That's not what happens in Scripture. But here Paul receives a vision that's just clear. And they say, all right, we're going to go to Macedonia. And so you see that, that 
Paul had his plans, but God had different plans. And, and Paul is being guided by the Holy Spirit to lead him to do his will. This is what one commentator said. Once again, the narrator shows a keen interest in the dialogue between human purpose and divine purpose, indicating that Jesus' witnesses must be patient, enduring the frustration of their own plans in order to discover the opportunity that God opens. This opportunity may not be the next logical step by human calculation. That should be encouraging to us. If you don't hold to the sovereignty of God, then you are wondering, am I on the right path? You actually can't have any certainty in your life. But if you can rest in the scriptures, you can know that whatever stage of life you're in, whatever path or whatever doors have been closed in your life, that God is behind them doing a work. You heard it in Eric and Angie's testimony. Angie's father was diagnosed with cancer and died. I don't know all the things that God was doing through that, but one of the things was softening Eric and Angie's heart so that they would come to know the Lord. God is sovereign over these things. And if you can rest here, you will find a lot of peace in your life. But if you're anxiety-ridden, you know where it always is coming from? I don't really trust the Lord that he knows what he's doing and i got to take matters into my own hands. Now, obviously, this is about missionary journey, but it applies even to us. God's just not control over us when we go on mission trips. He's in control even now. But I want you to see that they go into Philippi, and they meet a woman named Lydia. And I want you to see how God works through the preaching of the gospel to sovereignly open up her heart. Verse 11. So setting sail... From Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothras and following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Here's what happens. Paul and Silas, they're in deep Roman territory, deep Gentile territory. And it's interesting here that it says they found a group of women praying. It's probably an indication that there's no synagogue at this time. A synagogue could not be established except with ten men. And then from that point on, you could basically build your synagogue. And so what it looks like here is by and large, there's only women who are seeking the Lord in this town. And he comes and he hears that there's a place of prayer where some of those who identify and worship the Jewish God, the true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they, they meet outside the gate next to the river and there's a, a prayer group, a group of women. It reminds us kind of like Jesus as he would get off the beaten path and he would find some of the least likely people in their society and reach out to them. And Paul and Silas come to a group of women, no doubt part of God's plan. These were the ones who would listen. And then we find that he zeroes in on one particular individual, Lydia. Verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, which is kind of interesting. Paul was wanting to go to Asia. You know where Thyatira is? Asia. <laughs> he did 
actually share the gospel. They're just the Asians that, that, that God wanted him to meet weren't, in there, weren't there. They were in Philippi, or this one in particular. She was a seller of purple goods. This is purple dye and clothing, which means that she was probably a woman of, of great wealth and high status. And then it says she was a worshiper of God. She's like Cornelius. She's a worshiper of God, but she's a Gentile. She hasn't fully become or, or gone through the initiation rites of being a Jew, but she is attracted to the true God. But notice what we see at the end of verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Why did she listen? Let me ask this. Why do some people not listen? Why do some people reject the gospel? Why did you at one point in your life reject the gospel and then another time you heard it, you received the gospel? Because the Lord worked in your heart as he worked in Lydia's. He opened it. So you need to understand that, that all of us are dead in our trespasses and sins. That none of us seek after God. That we are all rebels on our own path. And unless God is gracious to initiate that act of opening and softening the heart, we will never believe in Him. So this actually isn't the issue of being fair. You know what would be fair? And the Lord didn't open anyone's heart. And left us to ourselves. But what we're seeing as we sing the great hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that God would save a wretch like me, God is saving people. But notice that as the Lord opened her heart that she would pay attention to Paul, that, that assumes that Paul's doing something, right? That assumes what? Paul's just sitting in his chariot or sitting on the side of the road and said, you'll save whoever you'll save, I'll just sit here. You'll open whoever's heart needs to be opened. I don't need to actually give my life for the gospel. You'll do this whether I do anything or not, so I'll just sit here. No! God works within means of us. He opens her heart to listen to what he had to say, which means he came there preaching. And the reason Paul could have confidence is because he knew that when he go into a city that the Lord would have many of his own there. And when they hear the gospel, that God uses that preaching to open up their heart. I would posit to you, if God is not sovereign over these things, you have no hope that anyone would ever believe. You would have no hope that God is actually moving. And what we're doing is just man's efforts. She did believe, and in verse 15 it says that she was baptized. And not only her, but her whole household she seems to be the head of the household in some fashion. No mention of a husband. Maybe he's dead or maybe she's just single and never married. But she has a whole house. And everyone who lived under her also heard the gospel and believed. God began working through this woman. And then she shows her genuineness of faith by urging us, verse 15, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. She says, I receive you. Make this your center of ministry post. Remember when Jesus said, whoever receives you, receives me? That if you go into a town, 
Those are to receive you. You're to stay with them, and they will meet your needs. But if no one receives you, shake the dust off your feet and move on to the next town. You're seeing faith demonstrated. And so she prevailed upon us. She insisted, no, stay here. I'll feed you. I'll take care of you, and you can go out and minister the gospel. You see the change in life. Let me tell you, how many of you, if someone walked randomly up to your prayer group and started preaching the gospel to you before you knew them, would have just on your own said, okay, yeah, you want to stay at my house? And just stay here as long as you need it. Cupboard's yours. Mikasa, Yukasa, whatever that is, you know? You know, just, it's all you. Of course not, unless the Spirit of God's working in you. You wouldn't logically do that. So Paul does this, and, and we're going to see that the Lord's still at work. Not only is he working in people and opening their hearts to the gospel, but he's triumphing over Satan. Look in verse 16. So as we're going to the place of prayer, this is kind of another day. It's been maybe another week. We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. Paul and Silas are continuing to minister the gospel. And they come in contact with a woman with a spirit of divination. And, and that word divination is the word python, snake. It's of the Greek uh, God uh, that recognized uh, uh, was Python, the snake or dragon that inha- inhabited Delphi in Greek mythology and was killed by Apollo. And here's what Greeks believed. They believed that Apollo resided in the Python and that he had this female prophetess who would speak on his behalf. And so what this idea is that she had a spirit in her belly that would speak forth fortune-telling. She had the spirit of Python in her belly. In other words, she uttered words beyond her control. She was not only physically a slave, but she was spiritually a slave. And notice that she's probably maybe what we'd call a psychic. Some people would say, you know, they're all frauds. I bet some of them are. But the Bible assumes that there's some who aren't frauds. They have a spirit of divination. And she made people a lot of money. But look at what happens. She's constantly following Paul and Silas, and kind of like the, the men who are demon-possessed in Jesus' ministry that are crying out, you are the Son of God. And Jesus would silence them. Paul seems to be annoyed, and he wants to silence this demon And so he says in the end of verse 18, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. What are you seeing here? You're seeing the sovereignty of God even over the spirits of evil. He commands in the name of Jesus because in the name there is power because he's the Lord. Both of the seen and unseen realm. We had a privilege of seeing how God is triumphing over the kingdom of darkness even while we were in Haiti. Many of you might already know this if you follow on Facebook. But while we were there, uh, one of the, and, and by, let me clarify, was not us like sharing the gospel with this 
voodoo priestess. We just happened to see God save one because of the work that the church was already doing. Pastor Joseph told us over dinner, he said this woman often would go into trances at night. In his translation, that she would become like a zombie and she would transform into various types of animals and she would roam the, the streets and that she would, like this woman, she would cast spells on you to help you succeed if you gave her money and she'd cast spells on your enemies that they would have curses. And I asked Pastor Joseph, actually the last time he was here, he talked about this, you know, what is that interaction that, that the voodoo has with the Christian church? And he says oftentimes their attacks are not physical, but rather they cast curses upon us. They pray and they, they have ceremonies seeking demonic affliction upon us. The church had been praying for this woman. No doubt, I'm sure many of them had shared the gospel with her. While we were at the house one day after we had been out, one of Pastor Joseph's sisters said, come, 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 there's a conversion. And they went to this woman's house, and she gathered all her items of voodoo, and she burned them. And that Sunday, she joined the worshiping community, and later that week, she's scheduled to be baptized. Let me tell you what all of a sudden happened. No one was at her house. No one was talking to her. But she decided, I'm going to forsake these ways and I'm going to pursue Christ. Well, it was people preaching the gospel. It was people praying for her, but it was the Spirit of the Lord who opened her heart. You see that here. God is sovereign even over the demonic world that opposes the gospel. And that should give us hope as we seek to preach the gospel in our community. We might not have booty priestess in our, in our midst, but you can rest assured that there's demonic activity even if we don't see it. But we can also rest assured that the forces of evil cannot overcome the open doors that God creates for the gospel. And so we walk through them and we boldly preach the gospel. And you might be looking at this, all right, if God's sovereign, then there's going to be no trouble in my life. Nothing's going to happen to me if God is in absolute control. Well, let's see what happens the rest of the story. Verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, uh-oh, she was a money pit for them in a good way. Hey, you collect a lot of money. Well, this demon's been cast out of her, so she no longer has the spirit of divination. And so their money was gone. Their source of income, their abuse was over, at least in some regard. And so they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had afflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Paul and Silas, they're dragged off into the marketplace. We spent time in the marketplace in Haiti. And you know what would happen? Us being clearly different. 
um, people would literally just stand and stare at you. And if you stood too long, especially in front of where they were selling items, they would get angry. Get out of here. Move along. You're hurting my business. Not only that, you try to purchase something. You know what? They're going to get jealous that you went to their store and not the other. Why did you buy these things and not us? Do you like them more than us? And, and of course, you can't understand what they're saying. We're getting things through translation. And, and always we're told, stay close. Just stay right here. And I was thinking about this text and just thinking as Paul would have been in these towns. As, as they said, these men are Jews. They're not like us. It's probably why Paul didn't like that woman crying out constantly, hey, these are men, servants of the Most High God. Hello, everybody. They're going to tell you the way of salvation. They're probably trying to keep it pretty chill. Hey, don't, don't blow our cover. Yeah, we're going to tell people, but we don't need to get everybody worked up. But that's exactly what happens. Strange and irony is, is they say that Paul and them are causing disorder and chaos, but it's actually these lords over the female slave who do all this. They're the ones who cause great trouble and notice here that as a result, Paul and Silas are beaten with rods. I won't go into details of what these types of beatings would, would go through, but you can rest assured this was a bloody affair. It would be broken bones. It reminds me, similar to Haiti, and you all know Gary Boggs, and if you're really close to Gary, you know that he likes to do things on his own. And one day our car broke down, and, uh, and, and we were right there in front of a couple of houses and they had gates and of course people are coming out to see why are these white people in front of our house well we're like where where'd gary go he decided to start snooping around and he went into one of the gates and started uh, going in and, and waving to people and uh, pastor joseph got him quickly and and said gary let me tell you what happened very close by here there were some Americans here, and they were found in the market without a, a Haitian with them. No one could understand what they were saying, and so they thought that they were ghosts, and they killed them. They got a ride together, and they ended up just beating them and killing them because they couldn't communicate. There's craziness. They don't know what to do. They fear you, and then they kill you. And you could just see that this is kind of probably what Paul was trying to keep away from, although he could communicate with them. You can see in these societies that it just uh, easily to get the crowds worked up. But I want you to see that God's sovereign over even this. That this is actually part of God's plan that Paul and Silas would end up in jail because look at what we see in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. And singing hymns to God. Well, let me ask you, how would you respond? If you thought God was giving your steps, you were confident in the ways you were going, but then trouble comes your way. Things don't maybe work out the exact way you've planned them. And oftentimes I, I hear from American Christians in particular, because we expect everything to go easily for us. Well, then God must not be for me. God must not be working here because there's trouble. And I want you to see there's trouble, but God is doing a great thing. And Paul and Silas are trusting the Lord, and that's regard, it drives them to start praying and singing hymns to God. And as a result, the prisoners were listening to them. 
How are you going to share the gospel in jail without getting put in jail? I don't think Paul and Silas could have said, hey, we're, we're, we're chaplains. Can you, can you get us in? We're Gideons. We've got Bibles for everybody. didn't work that way. How are you going to reach those people? Lord knew, I need you to come in, and here's some people that are going to listen to you. Not only that, the Lord answers their prayer. Verse 26, no doubt they're probably praying, Lord, use us, deliver us. And suddenly, verse 26, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfashioned. Now that's a pretty specific earthquake. Yep, God's not in control of anything. No, he sends an earthquake that rattles the prison, opens the gates, and causes your handcuffs to fall off. And your bonds on your feet to, to break. And guess what? Nobody dies. It's because God is working through their prayers. They're praying, they're singing, they're worshiping. Lord, come deliver us. Do a work in this. We don't know what's going on, but we're trusting you. And the Lord responds. I want you to see here that not only does he respond to their prayer, but he awakens the jailer. And I'm using a play on terms here. He not only awakes him physically, who's taking a nap, but he awakes him spiritually through this event. Verse 27, when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped now, let me ask you this. If you were in jail unjustly, and an earthquake came and opened up all the gates and your handcuffs fell off, I'm not going to lie, I might just keep my mouth shut. <laughs> That's our gate, gateway to get out of here. Which probably tells us that Paul was more in tune, not about his circumstances, but about his mission. He wasn't really concerned about himself. The Lord will take care of that, but here's a man who probably has been sleeping as we've been praying for him and singing songs. The rest of the prisoners were listening, but he was asleep. Don't die. Don't kill yourself. Because killing yourself, Paul knew, would have meant that this man would have gone to hell apart from Christ. And so Paul, right before he does that, says, do not harm yourself. We are all here. And the jailer called for the lights, rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Why wasn't he asking that question to begin with? I mean, the, 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 the woman, or the slave woman of the spirit of divination was proclaiming it throughout the whole, sea, the whole town. These men will tell you the way to salvation. The jailer slept through that, didn't care. These are, these are just some guys who've caused some trouble, and I'm just going to sleep on the job. Yep, got him locked up in the inner cell. Well, God woke him up. And although he doesn't say that God opened his heart, the way that Luke often does these things is he gives one story of a conversion. He gives just one detail that you won't find in the other, but he gives more details in the other that you should assume in the prior to show you how God is working. And you're seeing the effect of one whose heart is now open. They believe in the Lord Jesus and they are saved. And just like Lydia, look in verse 31, you and your household. And so Paul spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who are in his house. And he took them that same hour and washed their wounds. Why would he need to do that? Because they had been beaten to a pulp. 
This man received Paul and Silas just like Lydia did, brought them into her home, washed their wounds, heard the word of God, and what did they do? They were baptized at once, he and his family. They brought him up into his house, set food before them, and they rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in God. God was working through the trouble to save this jailer's household who probably lived in the prison, who lived in the jail. So here's where I want to challenge us. One, let's believe the scripture that God is in control. God is working things according to his purposes. He's working those things for our good, our ultimate good. And that doesn't mean, oh, God's going to turn this situation to good, which means it's going to work out the way I want it to. It means he's working things out for the good of his kingdom purposes, which if we are loving him and we're called according to his purpose, that will bring ultimate good towards us, meaning glory in heaven. But we can rest assured that as all this trouble is happening, God is just opening up different doors that otherwise couldn't have been humanly achieved so that people may come to faith in Christ. I'll close here with the last portion of this text in 35 through 40. Bottom line is, the next day, the Romans basically said, that's enough beating and punishment, just release these men secretly and let them go. But Paul says, no, <laughs> let them come and get, them, get us themselves. Paul's a little bold here. And so they come, and basically Paul wants a public release because he says, you've actually wrongfully treated us. You're not supposed to beat Roman citizens without cause, without a fair trial. And of course, this scared the Roman officials because they knew that they could be liable for some big-time trouble for breaking the law, for not treating Roman citizens the way they should. So why did Paul just now raise the issue, hey, I'm a Roman citizen? Elsewhere, you're going to see it, he'll, he'll raise the issue before he's beaten, but this time he allowed himself to be beaten. I don't know exactly what's, what's the rationale other than this. Seeing the strong sovereignty of God, before Paul leaves, he's given a public notice hey, we were in the right, which leaves the church that remains in good situation, good standing with Romans officials. And this allows him, they came and apologized to them and took them out, and then they asked them to leave the city. So they brought Paul and Silas back out, apologized publicly, and then said, now, could you please leave? But what that did is it said, hey, these guys aren't crazies. And then Paul was able to go back to Lydia's house, and no doubt he'd seen the brothers. Where'd these brothers come from? The jailer, his household, other people who came to faith in Christ. And they encouraged them, and they departed. Mission accomplished. Now, I can promise you when we take trips to Haiti, that's not the way we plan them out. And I hope they don't turn out exactly like that in future times. But here we're seeing the sovereignty of God work in all these situations to accomplish his purposes. And as I pray, I want us to pray that Lord would cause us to be alert. Think about what's going on around us. Why are these things happening? Even if we don't understand that we would be like Paul and Silas, we'd trust him. We'd turn to him in prayer. We'd turn to him in singing. So let's pray and then we'll close with a song. Dear Lord, 
Your grace is abundant. Your grace knows no bounds, Lord. And as we think of our own lives, how your grace saved us and draws to yourself, maybe we have people who, who grew up in a Christian home, parents and fathers who, who instilled the gospel in their children and, and brought them up, Lord. We, we weren't in control of the family we were born into, and so we thank you for that privilege. When we think of others in our, in our midst who didn't grow up in that type of household, a Christian home, maybe like Eric and Angie, but yet you were sovereignly working in their life through differing events, even orchestrating sermons that seemed as if the events that were being spoken of from the pulpit were the exact events that were going on in their life, and you opened their heart. Lord, I'm sure if we let time tell of the testimony after testimony of how we can all identify how the Lord, how you worked in circumstances so that when we heard the gospel that one time, we believed. And Lord, I pray that you would use us however you see fit to reach people in this community. Use this church, we ask. And may we be a people who preach boldly because we're con- we're, we rest assured that you are in control. And that's why we come to you in prayer right now. Because we know not only are you able to act, but you say that if we ask anything in your name, you'll answer it. And so, Lord, we pray these things not according to our wills, but that your will may be done. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing. Jesus Chase has preached, this grace is for us. So let's praise God together with joy that he has come to save us.